0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org I am Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news we'll begin with warnings from the United States intelligence community that Russia plans to invade Ukraine as it mobilizes 175,000 troops on Ukraine's borders and speak with Stephen Pyfer a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council. We'll discuss his article at Brookings, Will Putin Miscalculate?, and whether the video conference President Biden will be holding with President Putin on Tuesday will head off a Russian invasion, which Ukraine expects in January. Then with Congresswomen Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene routinely spouting racist hatred and Congressman Gosar making death threats against the president and the squad, we'll investigate the rise of political hatred in the pro-Trump red states and speak with Dick Lair, a professor of journalism at Boston University and a former reporter with the Spotlight team at at the Boston Globe. He won numerous awards and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for investigative reporting and is the author of seven award-winning books of non-fiction and fiction, the latest of which just out is White Hot Hate, a true story of domestic terrorism in America's heartland. We'll discuss the links between violent militias and far-right media provocateurs like Alex Jones and Tucker Carlson, who have mainstreamed hate as they play with fire in the name of patriotism. Then finally, we will speak with David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he is the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book just out is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. We will look into how crime has paid for Trump and his family, with Trump earning $1.7 billion while in office, and a Jared and Ivanka making $640 million on a White House salary of $1 per year. And since I recently resigned in protest from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, background briefing is now completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at backgroundbriefing.org donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Stephen Piper, who's a non-resident Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution and a Fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council. And he has an article at Brookings, Will Putin Miscalculate? Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Pfeiffer. Uh, thank you. Well, Ambassador Pfeiffer, the uh, intelligence community is quite alarmed by the buildup on the Ukraine border with Russia, putting it a kind of blitzkrieg force together of up to 170,000 soldiers with the latest equipment, and we've had meetings between uh, Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary uh, Russian Foreign Secretary Lavrov in, in Sweden on Thursday. Just on Friday, and since then. Secretary of State Blinken has said, we don't know whether President Putin has made the decision to invade. We do know that he is putting in place the capacity to do so on short order, should he so decide. So at this point, I don't imagine Putin is going to pull the trigger until this phone call that's expected soon between President Biden and Putin happens. And when do you think they're going to get on the phone and talk about this? Well,
1: there was a report this morning that said that there would be a secure phone conversation between Presidents uh, Biden and Putin on Tuesday, December 7th. Um, So I I think that that will be a a critical interaction. I mean, if you look at what is being said in Washington, but also uh, at, at NATO headquarters and other European capitals, Berlin, Paris, London, um, there's far greater concern about the Russian military buildup this time than about the buildup we saw back in April. Now, having said that, I'm not sure Vladimir Putin has decided what to do. This is somebody who traditionally likes to have lots of options. So, you know, could this be a bluff? Do the Russians plan on going in with a major invasion? Uh, I, I don't think we know yet, and Mr. Putin may not yet have decided. I mean, ideally, from the point of view of the Kremlin, just this kind of this build up, this sort of threat of force will somehow lead uh, lead Ukraine to concede and and maybe the West to back off on support for Ukraine. I don't think either of those are likely to happen, uh, but certainly uh, if the Kremlin could achieve its goals without using force, that would be preferable. But then the question is, does the Kremlin properly calculate the cost? Because I believe that the cost to Russia military action against Ukraine would be huge.
0: Well, from my understanding, Ambassador Pfeiffer, the possibility of cutting Russia off from the swift international banking system would be catastrophic for them. And we do know that Putin values the billions he stashed abroad. So is there a possibility? I mean, clearly, I don't think anybody wants war, do they? I mean, that's just would be catastrophic. (laughs) and the casualties would be enormous, uh, both on the Russian and the Ukrainian side. Can they go back to the Minsk Agreement, even though that was somewhat one-sided? It was signed by Ukraine and Russia in 2015.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, let me start on the point of view about the cost. I mean, uh, again, if the Russian military goes into Ukraine, there will be very significant costs. One will be political isolation to Russia, and, and that bothers Putin. Second, there will be... Additional economic sanctions, and there have already been reports of conversations between American and European officials about drawing up a list of the kind of sanctions. And I think one of the things would be cutting the Russians out of the SWIFT system, which would be hugely disruptive to the Russian economy. But there could be additional sanctions that would target either certain sectors of the Russian economy, state-owned firms. They could expand the list of Russian individuals for banned on visas and subject to asset freezes. You know, in the grand scheme of things, if you look at Western sanctions on Russia now, on a scale of one to 10, they're about out of three. So there's a lot more that could be done that would inflict economic pain on Russia. Another cost to Russia would be, you would see, I believe, an intensification of NATO's effort to bolster its defense and deterrence capabilities. NATO reversed you know, 20 years of drawdowns in 2014 when the Russians seized Crimea, if they now launched an invasion of this size in Ukraine, my guess is you'd see military budgets in a lot of data countries going up. That's not going to be welcomed from them. But, but the big cost and the one that I worry the Russians may underestimate, because you see these stories that say some Russians expect that the Russian army would be welcomed as liberators in Ukraine. That's not the case. The Ukrainian army today is much, much better and much larger than it was in 2014, And I believe they would fight, and if it became necessary, I think you would see guerrilla campaigns breaking out against Russian forces if the Russians would occupy territory. And this, to my mind, is something that the Kremlin needs to think about. What is going to be the impact on domestic opinion in Russia with that kind of conflict? I mean, seizure of Crimea was bloodless, so that was popular in in Russia. The conflict in Donbass thus far over seven years, the Russian government maintains this fiction, and it is a fiction, that the Russians are not involved, that it's just separatists. And that's a total fiction. But this time, you know, if the Russian army goes in at this scale, there's no way they can hide the fact that it's the Russian army and the dead soldiers coming home are going to be Russians. And I'm not sure that that's going to be popular with the Russian public.
2: But and, is I, and, it, I, and I
1: go back to I go back to a comment a, a Ukrainian told me, this was five or six years ago, where so when some Russians said, if, if we want to, we can be in Kiev in two weeks. And his response was, yeah, the Russian army could be in Kiev in two weeks, he said, but they'd have a hard time getting out.
0: Right. Well, that sort of echoes of Iraq, isn't it? A quick victory followed by a slow defeat. Um,
1: or in the Russians' case, Afghanistan. And yeah. our experience in Afghanistan, it was very easy for the Soviet military to get into Afghanistan in 1979, as it was for us. And you had that what looked like an initial victory, and then it was the subsequent years where you know the, both the casualties and the cost mounted. And mm-hmm. I think there's the, the prospect that if the Russians really try to seize a large chunk of territory of Ukraine, that uh, Afghanistan might look like a picnic in compared to what Ukraine could be.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Ambassador Stephen Pfeiffer, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Centre for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council. And he has an article at Brookings, Will Putin Miscalculate? But what I find concerning, though, is that Putin himself has contempt for, particularly Zelensky, who was very popular and got elected, but since the Pandora Papers revealed the, what, 43 million he's got stashed abroad from this dreadful oligarch that backs him, uh, who ripped off all these Ukrainian depositors with his uh, bank fraud. Putin doesn't believe that Ukraine is a a legitimate country. So is is there a touch of arrogance here amongst him and his general staff in the military?
1: Well, there's, uh, I mean, uh, on, on the part of Putin, you know, he wrote back in July, or it was written for him, but it was published under his name, this astonishing essay on Ukraine, that portrays a deeply flawed understanding of Ukraine's history, but basically denies um, the legitimacy of a, of a sovereign Ukrainian state. You know, that should be worrisome. Uh, you know, in terms of Zelensky, I, I think the factor that has been most In Putin's mind about Zelensky is when Zelensky was elected president in 2019. um, First of all, the Russians didn't like uh, Zelensky's predecessor, uh, Petro Poroshenko, but with President Zelensky, they thought, "Here's somebody new, inexperienced. Perhaps we could work with him to achieve at the negotiating table Russian aims." And it, I think, became pretty clear early on that President Zelensky was not going to be a pushover for the Russians. And what you see now, in particular over the course of the summer, is he's, the president's become much more outspoken in saying Ukraine's future has to lie with the European Union and NATO, which is a widespread feeling in Ukraine now, after seven years of war with Russia, that they have to have some kind of safe harbor uh, to protect their security. But isn't that the red line? But isn't
0: that the, the red, line? About, isn't that uh, that, that, red line? That, that's the red
1: line. And, and uh, the, the NATO-Ukraine question right now is, I mean, quite frankly, there's not enthusiasm within NATO to put Ukraine on a membership track now, because if Ukraine becomes a member on Monday, does that mean on Tuesday under Article 5 that NATO has to go to war against Russia? So NATO's not prepared to do that. And I think that that has to be understood in in Russia. This is not an imminent question. I've tried to think through an answer, and the best I could come up with would be, a position which would say NATO membership for Ukraine, not now, but not never, and try to kick that can down the road. I don't know if that would be enough, though, to satisfy the Russians right now. But Mr. Putin seems to be escalating some of his demands, including, you know, he's now asked for the alliance to give Russia a legal guarantee that, that the alliance will not longer enlarge. That's just, I mean, if that's what his advisors have told him, They just don't understand NATO, because that kind of policy declaration would require a consensus view. And I'm not sure many countries, let alone all 30 members of NATO, would be prepared to make that agreement.
0: So just in the last couple of minutes then, Ambassador Piper, on Friday, President Biden said, I don't accept anyone's red lines. And on Tuesday, you said they're likely to be having this phone conversation, which could possibly de-escalate it the situation. On Thursday, President Biden has his democracy summit, which has already irritated uh, Xi Jinping of China and Vladimir Putin of Russia. So and there's an expectation that he'll also be at at his democracy summit, a virtual summit on the 9th and the 10th, that uh, he'll announce further sanctions. So are these sanctions in the pipeline or are we waiting for Russia to to invade? I mean, where's the... Carton, where's yeah. the horse in this?
1: Well, it,
0: it does sound like
1: American and European Union officials have already been consulting on the kinds of sanctions that would be applied to Russia if Russian military forces went in. What I would hope they would be doing, they may be doing this, but I, but I would hope that there would be a communication, probably private to the Russians, that said, look, we want you to know that if your military goes into Ukraine and there's a new offensive above and beyond what you've done already, here are the sanctions because I think sanctions communicated privately in advance can have a deterrent effect. You know, I want Moscow to understand very clearly the kinds of economic pain that it would be hit with. And hopefully that list is a very painful one that may affect the calculation. Um, and that's where I mean, my, in my own mind, because I look at those costs and I say, this could be potentially catastrophic for Russia and So I think at the end of the day, maybe there's not going to be a military invasion. But having said that, I also acknowledge I in the past have been a very poor predictor of the logic of Vladimir Putin. So I think the West needs to act as if this is a significant probability, but doing everything it can to dissuade and deter the Russians and communicating to the Russians in advance these are the sanctions, maybe that helps affect the calculation in the Kremlin and turns it towards the right answer, which would be no military use against Ukraine. Or no further military use against Ukraine, because of course, over the last seven years, the Russian military has seized Crimea and has continued this conflict in Donbass.
0: Well, Ambassador Stephen Popper, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I mean, speak with Ambassador Stephen Pater is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council, and he has an article at Brookings. Will Putin miscalculate? We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to the rise of political hatred in the pro-Trump red states and the links between violent militias and far-right media provocateurs like Alex Jones and Tucker Carlson who have mainstreamed hate as they play with fire in the name of patriotism. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dick Blair, who is a professor of journalism at Boston University and a former reporter at the Boston Globe, where he was part of the Spotlight team and won numerous awards and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for investigative reporting. The author of seven award winning books of nonfiction and fiction, his latest book just out is White Hot Hate A True Story of Domestic Terrorism in America's Heartland. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dick Lair. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And your book is essential reading because this problem is still with us. I mean, you could make the case that Donald Trump gave Americans permission to become racist again. It's like he lifted up a rock with all of his Bertha conspiracies, that which was the the opening volley of his election campaign starting in, what, 2013 when he came back from Moscow with the FSB orders to get into, to revive American racism. And frankly, it's been very, very successful.
3: Yeah, I know. And,
0: you know, this is a story about people that follow Trump and see him as their leader, as their, as their Fuhrer. And he's not going away. And frankly... I don't see much difference between much of what you reported about this plan to go after Somalis and Muslims in the in the heartland of Kansas inspired by Trump and what's happening today with Lorraine Bobbitt calling the somali American congresswoman Elan Omar a Muslim and a terrorist and et cetera et cetera so it it lives on doesn't it the problem
3: oh absolutely and uh it's 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 as if t- Trump helped invent a playbook that these others have adopted. Um, There's no question in in this story in White Hot Hate that um, these terrorists, domestic terrorists, were inspired by Trump. Um, He's a thread throughout the book. Um, This unfolds in 2016 when he was then a presidential candidate. Um, But one of his primary campaign promises was the Muslim ban. Um, And these um, men in southwest Kansas who were gun-toting, you know, far-right militia members and white nationalists, um, you know, heeded that call uh, and and said, but we need to take it a step further because there's already plenty of Muslims around us. And every one of them in their minds was an ISIS terrorist. So their idea of a solution was to exterminate them. And that was all, you know, behind the bomb plot, the conspiracy of to create weapons of mass destruction that this case is all about.
0: But what's happening and continues to persist, it seems, Dick, is that the sort of public face, the mainstreaming of hate through people like Lauren Bobbitt and Margie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar and others, along with Trump, who's certainly not gone away, and Trump himself going back to 2016 and, and since then, that's happening at the one level, but the people that are being influenced by it are out there and I'm assuming at some point or other, aren't we going to have some kind of copycat?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, you know, that's everyone's great concern, including our, our national security apparatus, homeland security. Uh, the FBI, which, you know, was slow to pivot from international terrorists um, to now recognizing that domestic terrorism is the primary threat to national security, is, you know, looking for the next uh, um you know, event or, or cabal to unfold. And yeah, that's, that's a huge worry. And I just think, you know, it's important. And I don't know what the solution is. Maybe you too, but is to keep calling it out. Um, and, right. and, and calling out that the harm that's done by, by, again, the proponents who are working from this um, is Islamophobic hate book, you know, playbook. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, and, you know, I write about this in my book and I know the New York times column is David Brooks has written extensively about what he calls the fear and xenophobia that's consuming America today. Um, We need somehow to come up with solutions, but it's important not to turn our backs and and on, on all the hate and the, and the darkness. Um, And that, and, and I think this was a unique opportunity in this, in this instance, in, in garden, the city bomb plot um, to really get down into it and understand how, how, these kinds of things can happen a bit of the why but who are these people what are they really like there were the resources available for a, a storyteller an nonfiction writer like myself to re- really tell the story beyond headlines which there were plenty when this case erupt you know the men were arrested on the eve of the election in 2016 there was another round of headlines during their trial in 2018 and then again two years ago when they were finally sentenced um so it, 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 yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the values of this is is not to turn your back on this, but to, but to see how one of these events um, really potentially can happen. And, and again, the good news here is that, and there's some uplift at the end that the bombs did not go off. You know.
0: Well, let's go through the the story without giving too much away, because I really urge people to get the book, and frankly, here I am calling you from Los Angeles, uh, Dick, and, and <laughs> every other person in this town, if you go to Starbucks, you've got people writing screenplays in the corner on their laptops, you know, so <laughs> this <is> a, <laughs> this reads like a movie, and I urge all of those wannabe screenwriters out there to, to get the book because you cannot make this stuff up, but essentially you have these... Hateful characters, Patrick Stein, Curtis Allen, and Gavin Wright, members of the 3% militia, Then, but that wasn't sort of radical enough for them, so they formed their own Kansas security force, virulent racists inspired by Trump and the anti-Muslim rhetoric and going after the local Somali community of immigrants, calling them cockroaches, which, of course, is what the Hutus call the Tutsis in Rwanda, and then right. you have this, you know, lucky accident that one of them, that Dan Day, who knew them all, obviously, since since they were children, he couldn't go along with it all. And we can get into how the FBI recruited him, but through him, and you've had access to the actual bugging that he was, he was responsible for. So you actually hear these people say what they say and cheer when Trump makes these speeches about going after Muslims and stuff, it's so frighteningly real. And had they pulled this attempt off to blow up a mosque and blow up the apartment buildings where the these Somali immigrants lived, it would have been worse than probably the, one of the worst terrorist incidents short of 9-11, right?
3: Right. Well, the sentencing judge, the federal judge who sentenced those three men that you mentioned, said if they had succeeded, it were, would have been the devastation and the deaths would have been worse than what Timothy McVeigh accomplished at the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, and in fact, on the tapes, um, you, you hear the men referring to Timothy McVeigh. You know, um, they want to do a McVeigh um, on the Muslims. Um, you hear them referring to the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, because in addition to building bombs, they, they decide that they need to uh, author a manifesto. They call to arms that this this extermination that's happening in Garden City, they're hoping will will launch a, a crusade. I mean, that's what they, they self anointed themselves as a as a smaller cell within the Kansas security force as the crusaders. They were crusading against the Muslims um, and they saw themselves uh, with the success they hoped for of killing all these Somalis in Garden City. And. Um, to um inspire like minded events around the country against Muslims in america um, yeah, and so there, the the man, the manifesto, which again i i um was seized by the government when the men were arrested, and uh, it's the kind of resources that as a as as, as a journalist here i get want to get my hands on and it's you know it's jaw dropping stuff um calling calling for Americans to stand up and save America against the Muslim invasion, you know
0: And again, I'm speaking with Dick Lair, who's a professor of journalism at Boston University and a former reporter at the Boston Globe, where he was part of the Spotlight team and won numerous awards and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for investigative reporting, the author of seven award-winning books of fiction and nonfiction. His latest book just out is White Hot Hate, a true story of domestic terrorism in America's heartland. So you got hold of the actual surveillance tapes, that were secretly recorded by Dan Day, yeah. And you had to listen to the, these hateful people, particularly Patrick Stein. That must have given you chills, right? When you actually heard yeah. these real plots being hatched.
3: Absolutely. And again, um, and then you know, thousands upon thousands of pages of transcript because these meetings went on for seven, eight months, and, and the meetings each meeting might last three to four hours, um, and only snippets of it. Ultimately, uh, to, to let me make it into the federal uh, trial against these men, because those those excerpts that go to the conspiracy. Um, but as a writer and, and wanting to tell the, the fuller story, it's what they it's what else they talk about. That's interesting. It could be about guns. Um, it could be about other possible plans they might have uh, and not just the Muslims. But how about the landlords who are renting to them? It could be about. Um, sleepy Joe Biden. It could be about Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. None of that makes it into the trial. But it's all revelatory in terms of the way these guys think. One, Curtis Allen couldn't stop talking about how much uh, love he had for Alex Jones. Um, And in fact, when to loop back for a second to the manifesto, Curtis was the main author of the manifesto. Um, And they were talking about when to mail it out to get publicity either before or after the bombing. Um, And Curtis claimed that let's call Alex Jones. He'll put us on live and and let us read it out loud. Um, So another part of the theme of this is is the role of far right media, the role of Facebook and social media um, in, in sustaining and enabling these men to, you know, go well well down the road in, in creating uh, these fertilizer bombs, just like Timothy McVeigh did, that they hoped to use to kill a whole bunch of Somalis who were living and working in Garden City, Kansas.
0: So how much is this the case of the cart before the horse or vice versa? In other words, the hate is there, but these people like Alex Jones and right-wing media, uh, and particularly Tucker Carlson, is aggressively rewriting the history of uh, what happened on January the sixth. This has January the sixth written all over it. Your new book, White Hot Hate, it seems almost like the sort of psychological diagnosis of many of those people, the ones that we saw on video Absolutely. smashing, smashing the glass, and defecating yep. and desecrating. Yeah,
3: I think you read White Hot Hate and and kind of absorb all. You know, again because of the resource store You know the. I was able to access to tell the story. Um yeah, you see how January 6th happened, you know. Um it's there there's a direct line between that. In fact, after the January 6th um takeover of the Capitol, um Dan Day called. Um, you know, and, and Dan, he, watching Day's the, the team, Dan
0: Day's your inform, the inf, the informant.
3: He was the Yeah, he was the local Garden City guy who um Became an FBI informant and then putting his life at risk, secretly recorded all these meetings. That so ultimately, at trial, the men basically convicted themselves in their own words because of the tapes. Um, and he was he was the key witness at the federal trial against them. But at, you know, after January 6th, he's calling me. He goes, you know, those guys weren't in prison. They would have been at the Capitol. He had no doubt in his mind. You know that that they would have. You know, responded to to you know the recruiting for that in, in, in the days and weeks leading up to that event. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, and again, I'll go back that and there's been a plenty of, 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 you know, arrests where there are international domestic terrorist cases, but most of them plead out and it's hard to get beyond the headlines and some of the pleadings that are in court that may, um, include some of the evidence and whatnot, but without a full blown trial, like we had here, you never can, and even the trial, um, only takes the story so far. It's just the rules of evidence and everything else. But once the trial's over, which is when I, I was fortunate enough to step into the story, the entire record becomes uh, potentially available. And that means, like, as you mentioned, all of the tapes, not just those that had evidentiary value to the, to the charges at hand, but everything. Um, and that's when you can create this, you know, this dark world um, that was uh, unfolding out there in Southwest Kansas and tapping into the militia movement um, there's these great scenes, Ian, between th- there's a moment when the three men who are the, you know, the the key conspirators, they're trying to recruit some of their other militia members to join them, thinking they could use some more help. And it becomes these, um, an amazing de- debate about a militia the purpose of a militia and the competing visions of what a militia is. Um, because obviously Patrick Stein and his cohorts, believe that they no longer wanted to be what they called keyboard patriots. They had to take pro take action, eliminate, exterminate what they called the cockroaches, the Muslims. Some of these other militia, they said, whoa, there's no way I'm going out there to just shoot people. Um, Their view of a militia was we're we're stockpiling, we're prepping guns and, and food. In the event of a defensive measure, I mean, they weren't necessarily fans of, of Muslim ing- immigrants, but they were only going to be ready in case someone came at them. It might be the federal government because there's that, that's a big strand of thing and the anti-government uh, and, and all that. But they were – you know, they could not buy into Patrick Stein and Curtis Allen and Gavin's right notion that we have, we have to go on the offensive and go to war.
0: But they were pragmatic enough not to do anything until after Trump got elected. They didn't want to hurt his chances in 2016.
3: But Right. Originally, he, right he, origi- they were, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, originally they were thinking of doing it on the anniversary of 9-11. They weren't going to be ready. And then you're absolutely right. They just said, well, we better wait until after the election.
0: Right. So it's just so clear the connection between Trump's words of, at charlottesville good people on both sides he's never going to repudiate these people but no, and then, i still want to i still want to get a sense if i can from you dick from what you learned sure. in terms of what because i look at these militia types and, and they frankly look like clowns they look pathetic i mean what the hell are you worried about why do you have to have an assault rifle on the streets of america why are you decked out head to toe in kevlar and camo I mean it's a goddamn joke, you know are the Martians coming? well there's a level of pathetic folly to it, but there's also the deadly reality
3: yeah, I know what it's a it's a it's a toxic combination that's for sure there is a this sort of sense of buffoonery about them uh quality but but you're right, they're deadly serious, and they work themselves up in a lather in what I'll call you know that echo chamber of 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 white nationalism and the far right extremism that that the media, that brand of media, and social media, and Facebook, you know, that's they—they—they're they're not alone anymore. They—they they find themselves. On, these guys found themselves on Facebook, connected through Facebook, um, and 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 then they're off and running. You know, they learned how to make bombs th- through Facebook and online, downloading uh, all these recipes for fertilizer bombs the way that Timothy McVeigh did. Um, and, uh, and slowly, you know, they're hardly efficient um, over the course of the summer of 2016. Um, you know, they, have an, uh, they call a meeting and they'll have an agenda and whatnot. But boy, they might go off on a tangent talking about the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, they just go all over the map, but and it takes, they're not hardly an efficient bunch. But, but by the end of the summer, they had, uh, Curtis Allen and Gavin Wright had accomplished what I learned is the hardest part of making homemade bombs, and that is the blasting cop, the primary explosive. The detonator, which is the most volatile, uh, and once you get past that, putting together the fertilizer and all that is really no big deal in the scheme of bomb making and they had succeeded at that they and which is what you know re, re, which was what you know got the fbi and 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 the informant and they had to come up with a, uh, a what they call you know a, a smooth takedown plan
0: so just in closing then Dick uh, is there any Insight you can offer us in terms of what can neutralize these people. I mean, (laughs) at the risk of sounding like a North Korean talking about thought reform, how do you disabuse these paranoid Americans about these delusions they have? How do you neutralize this hatred?
3: I I mean, I wish I knew. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure that all of us wish we knew how to confront this um, more effectively than than is happening? Um, I know that Dan Day um, talks about you know and, and others in Garden City where there are where there's a lot of diversity uh, and immigrant population to work in the meatpacking plants. Talking about getting to know everybody, people you know, and in, and in, and that's what the Somalis get to, get us, get to know us. In, in fact, the book opens with a um, a Somali pro- proverb. Which uh, a Somali that I met translated for me. It's in in the translation is "Get to know me before you hate me." <laughs> you know, um, and yeah. I think there's something to be said about that. And 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 just calling that calling out the hate and say, wait, get to know these people before you hate them. You know.
0: Right. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Dick Lear.
3: Well, thank you very much, Ian, for having me. Appreciate it.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Dick Lair, who's a professor of journalism at Boston University and a former reporter at the Boston Globe, where he was part of the Spotlight team and won numerous awards and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for investigative reporting, the author of seven award-winning books of nonfiction and fiction. His latest book just out is White Hot Hate, A True Story of Domestic Terrorism in America's Heartland. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how crime has paid for Trump and his family, with Trump earning $1.7 billion while in office, and Jared and Ivanka making $640 million on a White House salary of $1 per year.
2: We all brothers, not cause things the same Because we lack the same color And that's gray. now that's main. Can't burn his cross Cause he can't afford the gasoline Now if a Muslim woman's trapped with a bomb on the bus With the seconds running give you the jitters Just imagine an American-based Christian organization Planning the poison water supplies to bring the second coming quicker
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David K. Johnson, who's the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code. That he's uncovered so many tax dodgers that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. He's also the co-founder of dcreport.org. And his latest book just out is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Welcome to Background Briefing, David K. Johnson.
4: Well, Ian, thank you for having me on again.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And your book is uh, welcome because we have this grifter who was in the White House for four years and, and plans to come back to the White House in 2024 and controls the Republican Party. And as the book uh, reveals, what, 40 minutes into the the job, his first day in the office, he was already making deals. And on his inauguration parade, he stopped in front of the Washington Hotel that he owned and insisted on being photographed there, sending a signal to all the lobbyists and foreign dignitaries to book rooms and reserve restaurant tables, etc. And now we're learning, uh, David, that He's going to sell the hotel and make a personal profit of $100 million. So whoever said that crime doesn't pay?
4: Yes, and and be a little skeptical about the public announcement about the deal. It's a private deal, and Donald is notorious for making claims that turn out not to be true once we see the documentation. But, you know, he may well make money on it because people in the hotel business realize that at some point... The pandemic will abate uh, at least somewhat, and hotel properties will be much more valuable and uh, that's why he was able to find a buyer for the lease he doesn't actually own the hotel the federal government owns it, but the lease on the property
0: so is there i know we've talked about this before because you've 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 covered trump for decades, and he's always been one step ahead of the sheriff he was groomed by Roy Cohn, and Roy Cohn turned the account over to Roger Stone. I mean, you have to admit that this guy is surrounded by the sleaziest people, and as things get worse for him, the people that he chooses are just bordering on insane. I mean, he himself, even the Russians who clearly helped get him into the White House, they privately think the guy's madly unstable. It's an amazing story, isn't it? But at some point or rather... What does it say about us? What does it say about America that somebody... I mean, David, you would have to scour this country to find a human being worse than Donald J. Trump. And yet here he is still dominating the conversation.
4: Uh, You're exactly right about that, Ian. Um, It is astonishing that so many Americans believe he's the only person who tells the truth, the only person you can trust, They turn an absolute blind eye to his thoroughly documented history of criminal conduct, cheating workers and investors. And he, he even cheated people at one of his casinos in Atlantic City, where it was held out by the government in New Jersey that the casino industry was the most highly regulated industry in the world ever. And yet, he engaged in all sorts of misconduct, including literally cheating novice roulette players, which I exposed, I don't know, 30 years ago now. And the people around Donald are people who have really – smarmy is too kind a word. I mean, they just have awful reputations for dishonesty. Uh, and what did he do at the end of his presidency? Steve Bannon stole a million dollars from a charity. Donald pardoned him. Um, he, he, this is the important thing to understand about Donald Trump, who I describe as the greatest con artist in the history of the world, he conned his way into the White House, is that the rest of us have a sense of this is right, this is wrong. Well, you could do that, but really, you know, it might not be good for your reputation. It might look bad. That is, we have some social controls on us. Donald doesn't have any of that. Anything he does in his mind therefore must be okay. And he creates his own reality. And we've all seen him on TV do something that when I wrote about it early on, there were people who said, oh, that's not true. And now we people, everybody has seen this where he will say something and 90 seconds later deny he said it. And that's part of his strategy. Take whatever is crystal clear fact and then muddy it up. Uh, it's how he's always operated. What's astonishing is there are 74 million adults in this country who voted for this man in the last election. Uh, our country is not doing well if that many people can be are marks for a con artist, and that's what they are. They're marks.
0: Well, but he, he may come back. I mean, the massive and comprehensive voter suppression and gerrymandering and the takeover of election workers, polling stations, and canvassing Operations by Trump partisans is happening at warp speed, along with the Republican legislatures in key states now passing laws so that they can count and certify the vote. If they don't like it, they can change it to their liking. I mean, the Republican oh, Party no would rather no ch- cheat than compete. That's a fact. Yeah. And we are I heading towards I one absolutely party agree state. With
4: you. I, I absolutely agree with you. There is It is very clear the Republicans, who are a minority party, Uh, plan to hold on to power by cheating and that shows that they are anti-american let's not beat around the bush if you don't respect elections then you're being anti-american because our whole system is based on this notion of a a democratic republic where we elect our leaders and if donald were to get back into the white house uh, it would be only because of cheating but keep in mind one thing He's going to be indicted in Manhattan and hopefully in Westchester County, by the state of New York, by the Attorney General of Washington, D.C., and the district attorney in Georgia, Fulton County, Georgia, if the legislature doesn't shut that district attorney down. And once he is indicted, it's going to change the whole picture. And if what Liz Cheney said the other day is true, that there will be weeks of hearings into January 6th which clearly wasn't spontaneous and if the tv networks rebroadcast that i mean at least pbs rebroadcasts it at night and the the three cable networks rebroadcast it at night people are going to learn a lot just like happened in watergate about how massive the criminal activity is and, and watergates a picnic compared to what trump did
0: and again, I'm speaking with David K. Johnson, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for reporting that uncovered loopholes in inequities in the U.S. tax code. And he's uncovered so many tax dodgers that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. And he's also the co-founder of DCReport.org. And his latest book just out is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. So I'm glad to hear that, David, because I I don't even understand why the Democratic Party doesn't understand this existential threat facing them that we're heading into a one-party state run by the GOP. And clearly, they're all going along with it, particularly McCarthy and McConnell, and they yeah, hate I, this I'm, guy. They think he's crazy, but they're going along with it. It's so uh, shameful.
4: I think the, the, the Democrats' fundamental problem is that they don't know how to message. They don't know how to market. The Republicans have had decades of highly paid help teaching them how to take things, in some cases utterly untrue things, and turn them into slogans that you can hear every day from people who believe in either the what was the Republican Party or Donald Trump. And um, in this book, though, what I'm trying to do is uh, so much happened with Trump and his thieving family and friends that it got lost. I mean, there was a story, there'll be a story in The Washington Post, and then there was some story in The Wall Street Journal a month later, and another story that appeared in the AP. And unless, like me, you were following this every day, you would miss the vast majority of this and even when I was working on the book, I began to realize there were all sorts of loose threads I hadn't connected from various different sources. And a lot of this stuff, because there was so much of it, just blipped up in the news and disappeared. So I, I've got, I took 18 stories and weaved them together into a tapestry so you can go through and say, oh, that's how they did it. Really, that's what they were up to then. This is why my and my family's welfare is in danger from what they were doing and the brazenness of what they did. I mean, this wasn't, the, you know, uh, Billy Carter trying to make some money off his brothers uh, being in the White House. Um, uh, you know, we, Richard Nixon had a brother who tried to do the same thing, and, and uh, this is quite different. This is the president himself in a way we have never seen. We, petty corruption, sure. Wholesale calculated from the top corruption of this level, we've never seen that. Even with the 130-some people indicted in the Reagan administration, it was over policy objectives they were pursuing. It wasn't over uh, turning the government into a cash register for the Trump family or, anything, or or Reagan's family.
0: Well, it continues. This is what troubles me, and I, I'm glad that you're optimistic that these court cases in New York and in Georgia and elsewhere Again, have finally nailed Trump because the book, point, your new book, again, the big cheat, how Donald Trump fleeced America and enriched himself and his family, points out that while he was in office, 1.7 billion dollars flowed through Trump's bank accounts during his four years as president, meaning he was earning more than a million dollars every day when he was in office, but he's still hard up for cash, which has always been the mo, because he's always inflated who he is and. And his wealth. So he's got more than 400 million uh, in debts coming due in 2024. Will we ever find out about how Deutsche Bank, who was behind these Deutsche Bank loans, who was guaranteeing them? I mean, is yeah, it possible I- that it could unravel a lot of the means by which he's been in the pocket of the Russians?
4: Um, Yeah, Ian, here's where I would really seriously fault the Democrats and prosecutors. Uh, They have plenty of grounds to go dig into this, and they're not. And I think it's pretty clear that Merrick Garland, uh, the attorney general, uh, who is very much a stand-up guy, uh, is uh, cautious, uh, perhaps overly cautious, about pursuing criminal conduct by the prior president. And I can understand the reasons politically, looking at history. One would say, you know, you really want to open up that can of worms. But lots of countries do it. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu right now is an indicted, accused felon uh, for what he did when he was uh, Prime Minister of Israel, and the French have done the same thing in other countries. Um, uh, I don't know if we're ever going to find out the full truth about this. Uh, The trials of Donald Trump for the crimes he's committed offer some prospect of that. Um, But at the end of the book, I show that... uh, We're in danger from a really competent manager – Trump is completely incompetent as a manager – coming into the office who has the same dictatorial instincts as Donald Trump. And there's a series of reforms I propose. They're simple-to-do reforms. And without them, sooner or later, a Josh Hawley, a Tom Cotton, a Ted Cruz, a Ron DeSantis, or a Rick Scott is going to get to the White House. Uh, Rick Scott, you may recall, ran the biggest known Medicare fraud in history. He ripped us off for 1.5 billion dollars, and yet wasn't prosecuted. And, and th- there's a real core problem in the United States that we we have weak laws on white collar crime, uh, 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 robust defenses, and not enough prosecutors to pursue these very complicated cases. Um, so I. I'm optimistic that Trump's indictment will lower his standing, but I'm deeply, deeply worried about the trajectory we're on, where so many Americans think that stealing elections and lying and uh, doing all the other things that Trump did, uh, submarining our national security interests for money, which is what Jared Kushner did, and I describe in detail in the book, using the Transportation Department, to help Elaine Chao, Mrs. Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, gussy up to the communist dictatorship in Beijing uh, on your and my tax dollars. That, that's that stuff we can stop and we need to, but the Democrats have to wake up and start acting like uh, a party that's interested in the fundamentals of government. I mean, we got here because the Democrats spent decades not paying attention to their knitting to the the core functions of government. Well, the Republicans did.
0: Right. Well, Elaine Chao's father, of course, his childhood friend was a former Chinese premier. So it's all out there in the open. And when you mention Jared Kushner, what troubles me, David, is I think Jared Kushner's fingerprints are still on the biggest problem that's facing Joe Biden, and that is inflation, largely being driven by the rising cost of gasoline at the pump. And every Saudi Saudi, uh, leader will always pump more because they're swing producers to help out an American president. This guy is doing the opposite. He's not helping out Biden. Biden even alluded to it recently at a CNN town hall meeting. So don't you think there's something still going on there with them? Oh, absolutely.
4: And and, and in fact, Jared Kushner, uh, who got us got Donald Trump to turn against Qatar, where we have our most important military base in the Middle East, and side with the Saudis and the Emiratis, he was lining himself up for a future handling their money. And he is now raising billions of dollars from wealthy Saudis and Emiratis for him to manage. This was entirely a grift. I mean, he and his wife made as much as $640 million while they were on the White House payroll for a dollar a year. Uh, from their outside business activities. And the Kushner family is just like the Trump family. They operate on, we're special, the rules don't apply to us. You have to play by the rules, but, but what, 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 no, we're, we're special, the rules don't apply to us. And they're, they're putting us in great danger uh, as a result of that, especially if they get uh, back into power. And the inflation we are seeing, part of it is because Donald Trump messed with the Chinese in stupid ways. I mean, just unbelievably stupid ways. And President Xi, a very sophisticated, strategic, that is long-term thinker, his government is doing everything it can to mess up our economics, but in subtle ways that you you have to have a deep understanding of economics to see what he's doing. And Ian, uh, in the people who've gotten back to me who've already read the book, the common thing that I hear from them is. I didn't. I didn't either know about all these things, or I had no idea of their significance. Thank you. That, and, and we need to understand what happened here. We're far from knowing what went on in the Trump administration in many areas. I focused on the kleptocratic side of it, uh, but uh, and others are going to do books about you know other other sides of this horrible maladministration uh, going forward. But I hope people read this because they are going to learn a lot of things they either didn't know or didn't understand the significance of at the time because they couldn't have.
0: Right, and every time you go to the gas station and put gas in your car, just think of Jared Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman and how they're They're laughing all the way to the bank. And they're also laying the groundwork for the comeback of Donald Trump in 2024.
4: Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, one of the stories in my book is about Money we don't know about. Uh, Stephanie Wolkoff, who had been Melania Trump's best friend, no more, was in charge of the inauguration. They raised $107 million for what I suspect cost $25 million. Where's the money? That's what the district attorney, I mean, the the attorney general of Washington, D.C. is looking into. And I have a story in there from uh, Stephanie Wolkoff about how they tried to get her to commit crimes to hide Russian money. I'm, by Russian, I mean Russian-speaking peoples, hide Russian money they wanted to uh, gather up and not report. And you can bet your bottom dollar there's Russian money that was put into the Trump uh, organization or ways that would benefit Donald Trump that has never been put on the public record. It was just brazen what they were doing. And fortunately, Stephanie uh, is an honest person, and she doesn't you know need any sort of marginal money. She was dirtied up in uh, the press, because they said, "Oh, she got twenty-six million dollars." No, she got paid four hundred eighty thousand, which is a lot of money, but a reasonable fee for the work that she did, based on what gets what people get paid in that business. And the money all went to uh, some cronies of Trump. She just was handed a twenty-six million dollar check and told, "Write this check here for I think it's twenty-four million and send it to them." Man. It was part of their effort to hide what they were really doing, and that's what went on all throughout this. That's what criminals do, you know. They they hide things. Donald announces some of his crimes, but lots of them are still going on in the background.
0: Right. But just in closing here, David, I wish the American people, particularly the followers of Trump, could understand how amateurish, incompetent, stupid, how he was the gift that kept on giving for Putin and for Xi Jinping. He weakened America enormously, and if he comes back, it will be the nail in our coffin.
4: Oh, yeah. I know. I agree. If Donald Trump gets back into the White House, I predicted he would not leave peacefully. I remember being criticized in 2015 and 16 when I said that by people. And, of course, I was right about that. And if he gets back into the White House, kiss your liberties goodbye. And somewhere down the road from that, there will be firing squads.
0: Well, David K. Johnson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with David K. Johnson, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. He's also the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book just out is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate, where you will find our nonprofit. Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Took the
2: kids to the and by